This is an ABC podcast. The Prime Minister has labelled it a human tragedy, and today he announced a royal commission into the former government's robo-debt scheme. Catherine Holmes, a former Queensland Supreme Court Chief Justice, will investigate the automated Centrelink program known as RoboDebt in a bid to answer why it started and why warnings about it were ignored. The last government gave us robo-victims, the last government gave us robo-denial. Today, Labor will give the victims some robo-justice. Robo-debt raises a very real question, what do we do when it's our own government that is engaging in potentially criminal activity? The Coalition abandoned the scheme in 2019 and later apologised for any hurt or harm caused. Centrelink's automated debt recovery system, or RoboDebt, sparked two Senate inquiries, an Ombudsman inquiry, appeals to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, several court challenges and now a Royal Commission. The system unlawfully sent letters to welfare recipients, requiring them to repay a debt, which according to Centrelink they owed due to the overpayment of their benefits. Hundreds of thousands of these robo-debt letters were sent, causing incredible stress to many Australians. The scheme was found not to be legal by the Federal Court in 2019, and Centrelink was required to repay all the so-called debts and to revamp its debt recovery system. Hello, I'm Annabel Quince. In this revision, on the eve of the second hearing of the RoboDebt Royal Commission, we revisit the story of RoboDebt, how and why it was introduced, and why it was allowed to continue for almost four years when there were clear signs that it was illegal. Before we get to how the system worked, let's first look at how Centrelink dealt with overpayments and the use of data matching between Centrelink and the tax office before 2016 when the RoboDebt scheme was introduced. Peter Whiteford is Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The data matching between the Australian Tax Office and Centrelink. This has been in operation since the early 1990s. It was actually, I think, the Hawke government that passed the legislation to allow data matching between Social Security and the Tax Office. But what would happen is Centrelink would identify whether there was a difference between what you had reported in that year to Centrelink and what you reported to the Tax Office. Now, if there's a discrepancy, if there's a difference that they think makes an impact on how much you get paid, they would then have a an individual officer investigate the discrepancy and they would do it in person. They did it on a case-by-case basis. Now, what that meant was that in the year immediately before RoboDebt started, they followed through on about 20,000 cases. So this doesn't mean that there were 20,000 people who had gotten overpayment. It was just that they thought there were 20,000 people who was worth asking for more details about. Of those 20,000 discrepancies, about 7% were found to be debts or overpayments. Terry Carney is an emeritus professor of law at the University of Sydney Law School. He sat for many years on the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and heard some of the first appeals from the robo-debt letters. Now, what used to happen was that any discrepancy between a six-month to year-long average and the fortnight-by-fortnight fluctuating incomes that matter for Social Security would be checked by officers of the department 
and the way they check, there'll be some contact with the person, but they also use the compulsory statutory paths to require employers to provide payslips and indeed to require banks to provide bank records of deposits into accounts. That used to pick up as debts about 7% of the suspicious matchings. We know it was 7% because the Ombudsman's first report obtained and set out that information. What changed, of course, with robo-debt was that not just 7%, but 100% of those matches were automatically treated as being a debt. So how did things change when the new system was introduced in 2015-16? Dr Darren O'Donovan is a senior lecturer in administrative law at La Trobe Law School. One of the key things that was happening the whole time was from... 1990, the legislation is passed which allows for data matching with the ATO. And all along the timeline, governments of all parties were working to make that data matching process, that initial flagging process, to make it a bit more efficient, less paper-based. And in 2011, the system at last progressed to the point where it could store hundreds of thousands of data matches. Now, as I say, this needs to be very carefully unpacked. They were only data matches, starting points. No one is saying that they are debts. So in 2011, they get this new capability to store data matches. And for four years, they keep the old method going, which is we take 20,000 or so of those as the highest risk discrepancies. We work those by going out to employers, gathering payslips. In late 2014, someone on an efficiency drive in the department walks into the compliance unit and says, why don't we go after these hundreds of thousands of data matches saved onto our systems? And obviously, we know from staff perspectives shared by the CPSU, the relevant union, that staff in the compliance unit were very much trying to say, this is a complicated decision. We gather payslips. We can't gather hundreds of thousands of payslips from employers. We must have the payslips to calculate the debt accurately. But the efficiency drive was prioritised. The government updated its costings this afternoon, revealing a billion-dollar improvement over four years to the budget bottom line. To pay for new policies, the coalition's announced a fresh welfare crackdown worth nearly $2 billion. Automating and streamlining existing compliance activities, the more frequent and stringent reporting, the more thorough government income matching and the detection of overpayments that occur within the system. We fast-forward to... February 12th, 2015, when the proposal for a new approach to calculating debts is sent to then Minister Scott Morrison. And that new approach is simply that they will no longer go out and gather payslips. Instead, they will ask the individual to do that. They will start in 2011 with the saved files the first batch that were ever saved. So already people are going to have to go back six, seven years and chase employers who may have closed. And if they don't do that, if they aren't successful in getting that historical documentation, the department will average the debt. They will use the ATO amount. And they will basically, if it's a year-long figure, not all of them were a year long, 
they will take the annual figure and divide it by 26 and assume that you earned a stable amount throughout the year. So the two key elements of the new system were, firstly, to remove the Centrelink officer from the process, requiring the welfare recipient to disprove the debt by gathering their own records and payslips. What changed with robo-debt was that instead of seeing whether the apple was anything like an orange, so to speak, whether the average was anything like the fortnight-by-fortnight fluctuations and getting a human being to to look at Terry Carney's particular circumstances, what was done was it was just automatically put into a letter saying you've got a seven or $10,000, whatever the amount might be, overpayment, and it's up to you to disprove the fact that we say you've got an overpayment. That was actually a fundamental breach of the law. The law has always said in Social Security that the department must prove the debt. Uh, You can't reverse that and say the person who's supposed to have an overpayment has to disprove it. The second thing that changed was it was almost impossible for most people in casual work because it went back much more than the statute of limitations. In Social Security, there really isn't one. And so these people were being confronted with this letter saying you've got this really big debt for work that occurred in the early 20-teens. Now, I don't know how many people would have assiduously kept all their pay slips <laughs> you know, for back in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15. And very often the hospitality and other work that people had, the casual work they had, often multiple jobs at the same time, were paying you know, under the counter or they've gone broke. Saying to people, you have to prove this debt was both unlawful and a practical impossibility for so many people. The second change under the new system was that if a person could not or did not provide the evidence to disprove the Centrelink debt, Centrelink would average their yearly income and use that average to determine if they had a debt. I mean, as anybody has taught in primary school maths, an average doesn't tell you anything about the constituent components of it. And uh, so in your example of somebody who had 26,000 over the year, that would be divided by 26 and the assumption would be made that there being 26 fortnights (laughs) in the year, that the person worked every one of them, first of all, and that of course is nearly always false in the casual and fluctuating income situations. And the other assumption made was that everybody received a standard fortnightly pay. And of course, with casual work, sometimes you're not called in at all in a fortnight. Sometimes, you know, over Christmas, you work (laughs) very, very long hours. And that's why the average was so unreliable. People would often, when I was on the tribunal, would be faced with a seven or $10,000 debt based on the average. And then when you got the fortnight by fortnight figures, it either went down to just a few hundred dollars or in just under half of all of the cases that the ombudsman looked at, it went down to zero. In other words, the person had perfectly reported their fortnight by fortnight actual earnings. It's just that the average made it look as though they had a, an overpayment of seven to $10,000 or more. Thousands of automated debt letters are being generated by a new federal government computer system that cross-checks all payments with tax office records. We will find you, we will track you down and you will have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison. That's Alan Tudge, the Human Services Minister, with a clear message. The government is determined to claw back billions in suspected overpayments. 
It was able to be ramped up because they put the administrative costs, which they'd previously paid people to do 20,000 cases a year, they put all of that administrative burden onto the recipients or ex-recipients. So reversing the onus of proof of that caused this massive expansion in the number of what were counted as overpayments. In the year in which Rabodet was introduced, it went from about 20,000 to 800,000 in a single year. We want to make sure that people get the welfare entitlements that they're entitled to, and no more and no less. In July last year, the government quietly rolled out its online compliance intervention system, a newly automated process designed to dramatically ramp up their debt collecting dragnet. Previously, it took us about a year to do 20,000 interventions. Now we can do 20,000 interventions in a week. When the new process started, the automated process started, people were then getting very high debt. Senator Rachel Seawart was the Green spokesperson for Family and Community Services and chaired the first Senate inquiry into the robo-debt system. So there's a number of issues here. One is there's a group of people that were still on income support. And because they were still on income support, the government obviously knew their address and contact details. But there's a group of people, because they were going five to seven years back, there was people that were no longer on income support and the government didn't have contacts for them. So they weren't getting the letters to tell them there was a discrepancy And when the government couldn't get in contact with them, they were then sending off the debts to debt collectors. And so sometimes the first people knew about things was literally when a debt collector turned up at their door or they were getting phone calls from debt collectors. But regardless of how people found out, obviously it was a huge shock. For some people it was a couple of thousand dollars and for some people it was over $10,000 and people just don't have that sort of money And so that's when people started ringing their senators and their MPs, going to the media. Now, people were saying, well, I don't owe it. I've always been honest. I've always filled in the form to the best of my ability. They were just terribly, terribly upset. Some were really angry. A lot of people were very anxious. Tonight, Centrelink accused of chasing debts that don't exist. I know that I don't owe any money. I feel like... I'm being made out to be a criminal. Between 2016 and 2019, they had nearly 700,000 reviews that resulted in a debt. More than half of those people were no longer recipients of payments. There were about slightly more women than men, and about 60% of people were under the age of 35. In total, we're talking about 75% being students and new start. Yes, it applied only to people of working age. It's the working age payments and the two principal working age payments are what is now called Job Seeker, used to be called New Start, and Youth Allowance. These were generally, but not always, young people who were in the gig economy or in hospitality or other on and off fluctuating on-call types of jobs. And as I say, in the first five cases that <laughs> on the tribunal that I said were unlawful, I think in each of those cases, the number of employers went into the double digits, you know, 10 to 15 or so employers over the period of time. So when people started to challenge these debts or question Centrelink re the debts, what was the response of the department to that? So the standard press release response of the department all through this 
was that averaging was a long-established technique and they were extremely confident in their ability to average this data. It was a brick wall for many people who couldn't get payslip information. So how many people who actually receive letters appeal the debt to a higher level? So we know that only a fraction of all the debts ever exited out into the formal appeal system. So only about 1.2% of the debts ever got out into the statutory appeals process. So that's the independent authorised review officer who sits in the department but is independent. And that was the first step for people. In those appeals, one in two were changed. So there was a 50% success rate inside the department with independent review officers. And then when people got out to the first level of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, there was about a 42% success rate. And then when people appealed up to the second level of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, where decisions are published online and the reasoning of the department would have been brought out into light, there was a 92% settlement rate on those debts. So there was this pattern where the pressure would come on and the debt would get recalculated. Now, those figures are also distorted by the fact that many people gave their payslips. So a lot of the successful appeals were calculated according to payroll information and weren't average debts. So effectively, we had a course for four years where advocates were pushing to get these average debts taken out of the system and to end the practice of averaging. And we never saw the department mount any kind of a successful defense of its reasoning. Um, I dealt with one of the very first robo-debt cases to come through the system, and that was in March 2017, and I then heard another five. There were at least another 80, and I found it to be unlawful, as was later vindicated by the Federal Court on two occasions. And it was actually so open and shut that I couldn't believe that I wasn't overlooking something that made the program lawful. So I went to great lengths with that first case to require Centrelink to provide written arguments in response to my identifying of what I saw to be the fundamental legal flaws. And they provided something in writing, but it didn't provide any type of foundation for the program. I also invited them to come along to the hearing in person and to argue orally. They declined to do that. Did either of the Senate inquiries or the Ombudsman report conclude that there was a problem with the robo-debt scheme? I think it hasn't punched through to the public how much those mechanisms of accountability misfired here. So the Ombudsman is often quoted as having criticised the system. The Ombudsman largely focused on the online platform. It was extremely poor and it caused an outcry in 2017 how that website functioned, but it was a second order issue. The Ombudsman failed to take any kind of a stance on the legality of the debts being issued. It literally stuck the core legal question, the billion-dollar legal question, got put into an appendix by the Office of the Ombudsman. And again, that's profoundly disappointing 
because the ombudsman is an accessible mechanism for people who cannot afford judicial review. Fundamentally, even though the ombudsman criticised the data matching algorithm, which matched the employer's names, criticised the letters that were sent to people, which were frankly an embarrassment in the way they didn't include a phone number. All of those shocking issues were second order issues to the massive legal elephant in the room. In terms of the Senate inquiry, I think we need to be realistic around politicians and their ability to probe legal questions. The Senate inquiry gave people a platform to talk about their treatment, how they felt, the pressure that was put on them when the government asserted the right to average. But fundamentally, a political forum like that is not going to be able to reach findings on the law. So people had a limited voice until that litigation came down, until Victoria Legal Aid put its institutional expertise behind those people. Unless it had done that, there's a possibility this whole system could still be rolling on and liability could be accruing. Madeleine Masterton was sent a robo-debt of $4,000 after receiving youth allowance support during her studies. She's taking on the landmark case with Victoria Legal Aid, who will argue that Centrelink's processes for calculating debt are unlawful. The federal government has suffered a major legal defeat over its controversial robo-debt scheme, with the federal court ruling that Centrelink shouldn't have pursued a Melbourne woman over a social security debt. Victorian Legal Aid brought the matter to court on behalf of a Melbourne woman, Diana Amato. Victorian Legal Aid took two cases. In the first one, the Masterton case, they recalculated the debt, and on the day that it was due to come to court, they completely dropped the debt. That was early in 2019. But then later in 2019, there was the Amato case, which was also a former recipient of youth allowance. The first thing she knew about her debt was when they withheld her tax return. So they initially said that she'd had a debt of about $3,700, and they, they added a penalty for not engaging with Centrelink. When it was coming to court, they recalculated and said that she owed them $1.68. This is after they'd taken $1,700 out of the tax return, and they dropped the debt, and they tried to argue that, therefore, there was no case to be followed through with, but it continued into the federal court, and the federal court in November 2019 ruled that the system was unlawful. So there was this pattern of two court cases where they dropped the debts in an attempt not to come to court. But in the second case, it did come to court. And that's when it was acknowledged that the whole thing was unlawful. And around that time was when Gordon Legal announced that it would be pursuing this class action. The Commonwealth has settled a class action lawsuit over its unlawful robo-debt scheme for a total now of $1.2 billion. The class action argued that the Commonwealth had unjustly enriched itself at the expense of Social Security recipients. Effectively, they were using the Amato argument that averaging was unlawful and giving a mechanism for collective enforcement. So without the class action, people would have had to complain to the department because after Amato came down, Frankly, there was panic in the department. The department 
went silent. They froze the debts. Everyone was wondering, what are they going to do? Are they, they have to refund this money. This money has to go back. But there was no announcement. With the class action, there was this collective pressure from hundreds of thousands of people saying, we will have you in court unless this money goes back, which it always had to do. So that collective voice, which ensured enforcement, was the primary achievement of the class action. And I think one of the most basic things the class action achieved was it meant that the federal court could supervise the process of finding every average debt from 2015 onwards. So I think the thing that should shock the taxpayer the most about robo-debt is that not only did the government unlawfully average debts, it never kept records of which debts were averaged. So in the aftermath of Amato, the department had to use 649 of its staff in what it called a highly manual process to click into each individual file and check if the debt had been averaged. And what the class action did was it coordinated the process of finding those debts. It ensured everyone was notified and the federal court, if it wasn't happy with that process of notification, could have taken action. And those really basic things are what the class action achieved, collective enforcement and finding the debts. Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, says he would apologise for the government's flawed robo-debt scheme, saying he regrets any hardship faced by people forced to make repayments under the programme. And I would apologise to any hurt or harm in, in the way that the government has, has dealt with that issue and to anyone else who's find themselves in those situations. It's true that the system has been fixed for the future in very large measure. From the 10th of December, there's a new matching that instead of looking at tax information over the year, looks at the one-touch tax system, fortnight-by-fortnight reporting that not all employers, but a lot of employers are now starting to be plugged into. But I think there's been an egregious failure of standards within the public service. And I think that failure is from top to bottom. Secondly, there's been clearly a number of ministers were obliged to resign. You bear responsibility, not for what you know as a minister, but for any serious maladministration in your department, whether you could have known about it or not. Of the ministers who have been variously responsible so far, none have paid any price at all, and the public needs to know why those standards have been permitted to degrade to that extent, to ensure that this degradation of public service administration and of ministerial accountability for the public service is not permitted to continue. If it wasn't for the people that just would not give up on this and the people that did take the legal action and that were courageous enough to do that, the support they then got from Victoria Legal Aid in particular. We also need to make sure that we are not demonising people that are trying to access our income support system. And we've seen what a critical role it absolutely plays when times get tough. Just look at how it supported so many people during COVID-19. And I hope what we take from this is that 
It is a vital part of our society and it's essential that we have a good, robust income support system that people can rely on and not be demonised for accessing support that they have a right to access but is also absolutely vital to them. Senator Rachel Seawart. My other guests, Peter Whiteford, Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. Terry Carney, Emeritus Professor of Law at the University of Sydney. And Darren O'Donovan, Senior Lecturer in Administrative Law at La Trobe University. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.